12 this morning. There should be a, an outline in your bulletin you can follow along with. There are printed uh, messages at both exits. You can either grab one now or get one later. They're kind of in a mustard-colored, golden-colored uh, cover this week. And uh, those are all online, so you can track with them there if you have a... Um, means of doing that even right now and uh, all of the audio messages are online as well. John chapter 8 verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, but I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father, If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. One summer day in 1969, I was uh, sitting on the lawn at UCLA reading my Bible. And uh, a young man, barefoot, walked up to me, began to talk to me, and in the course of the conversation, I asked his name, and he said, my name is Thomas, which is, of course, a common enough name. But then this fellow, with all sincerity, informed me that he was none other than the Apostle Thomas, the very one who had doubted Jesus' resurrection at first, And he proceeded to tell me that Christ had now sent him on a mission to go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, without money, without sandals, without uh, staff, he was walking around UCLA, going up randomly to those who looked like they might be from the lost sheep of the house of uh, Israel. And he would say to them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he would turn and walk away. Well, I grew up in California, so I was very aware that California is the land of fruits and nuts, and uh, I was quite sure that I had met a true native son in this this guy. Uh, There was not even a fleeting second in which I wondered, you know, I wonder if this guy really could be the Apostle Thomas. I just wrote him off as a nutcase, as I'm sure Everyone else that he walked up to did. Now, what if a man walked up to you and proclaimed, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Would you believe him? What if the same man had already proclaimed, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The same man said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Wouldn't you have to conclude with a man like that, making claims like that, that either he is some kind of a deluded religious nut, or he is, in fact, God in human flesh. Those are really the only options. And the point I'm making is Jesus' claims were not just innocuous, ho-hum claims. Jesus' claims were bold, and they demand a response. Now, in John chapter 6, where Jesus proclaims himself the bread of life out in the wilderness, it's a picture of the new manna. Jesus is the new manna, the new Moses who gives manna, the bread of life to God's people. In John chapter 7, Jesus is the water from the rock because the ceremony there had to do with the pool of Siloam where they would dump the water out. And it was a picture again of God sustaining his people in the wilderness for 40 years by providing water from the rock. And here in John chapter 8, Jesus is the pillar of fire in the wilderness who gave light, who gave protection and guidance to his people in the wilderness by his presence with them. And so John is showing us that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Jesus is the one who provides for his people's every need, even when we might feel we are in a wilderness on our way to the promised land. And so Jesus' claim here to be the light of the world demands that you respond by following him. Let me give you a little bit of background again. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, During that feast, as I mentioned, uh, the priest would go in procession to the Pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. He would fill it with water. He would walk back then to the altar in the temple and pour it out as a picture of God providing water in the, the wilderness, water from the rock that sustained Israel. And it was in connection with that ceremony that Jesus again cried out that whoever drank of him would have rivers of living water flowing from his innermost being. Now at that same feast, the priest provo- uh, led in a different ceremony where in the court of the women in the temple, they would uh, light these big, bright candelabras or torches. Uh, picture the Olympic torch that we all just saw recently. But there were four of them that would light up the entire temple area. And it was to commemorate the fact that the Lord had been a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day, uh, with his people in the wilderness for those 40 years. If you'll remember, that cloud appeared on the very night that Israel left Egypt and 
Pharaoh and his armies pursued them, but they couldn't get to them because the cloud stood between Pharaoh and uh, Israel. Then after they crossed the Red Sea and God destroyed Pharaoh's armies, that pillar of fire and cloud during the day, the cloud would protect them from that uh, brutal desert sun. And then at night, it would give them warmth and light in that dark and cold uh, desert wilderness. And so it went with them as a graphic symbol of the fact that the Lord God was with his people. Now, if, as we saw last week, the story of the woman caught in adultery in the, uh, John 7:53 to 8:11, if that is not authentic to John's original gospel, which probably it is not, then um, the events that we're looking at here took place either at that feast or shortly after the end of the feast, while the people would still have that picture of the lights in the uh, court of the temple uh, in their minds. Now in John 8.20 in our text, he tells us that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury was a place in the, the court of the women where there were these big trumpet-like receptacles that people could throw their offerings in. And so it would kind of go down like a funnel into the treasury box. And so it was in the very court of the women where they lit the torches that now Jesus stands and proclaims, I am the light of the world. And you have to put yourself back into that situation and think, how would I have responded had I been a Jew there in the temple? And how will I respond right now to this astounding claim? So first thing to note then is that Jesus makes this astounding claim. I am the light of the world, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There are four things to note about this remarkable claim. Number one is that Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is nothing less than a claim to be God, a claim to deity. I got a letter in the mail last week from a Jehovah's Witness man in Georgia been a Jehovah's Witness for 50 years. He began the letter by saying that he enjoyed getting my sermons. I assume he gets them online and reading them and that he teaches in his congregation and that the sermons had really helped him to uh, do his job of teaching. And uh, he also claimed that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. He used those words And then the rest of the letter, he proceeded to try to convince me that Jesus is not God. Um, And uh, he he said that he thought that when I called his group a cult in my messages, that I was being very unkind, that accusing them of heresy was unkind. And he views the Jehovah's Witnesses as the true remnant of God's people, and all the rest of us are... uh, deceived by Satan, who believe that Jesus is God. Well, of course, I begged to differ very vigorously, and I wrote him a pretty strong response to let him know that 
uh, he had a brief window of time to repent until he faced the Lord God in judgment someday. But um, the whole point of the Gospel of John, I pointed this out to him in the letter, the whole point of the Gospel of John <clears throat> is that all of us would join, <clears throat> excuse me, join Thomas there in chapter 20 when he sees the risen Christ and he falls down before him and he says, my Lord and my God. And the Jehovah's Witnesses explain that by saying he was swearing, which uh, hardly um, if he had been swearing, Jesus would have rebuked him. Instead, Jesus commends him and says, you know, have you believed? Well, blessed are they who have not seen and believe. So uh, totally opposite to what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Thomas was affirming Jesus as his Lord and his God, and so should we. Now, as I say, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews recognized the pillar and the cloud as the Lord being with them. Um, in the Old Testament, light is often used as a metaphor for God. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Um, or as uh, Jeremiah read there before the worship time in um, Isaiah 9.2, and this is cited by Matthew in Matthew 4.16. Isaiah predicts, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Then also in Isaiah 42.6 and in Isaiah 49.6, the Lord tells his servant, the Messiah, that he has appointed him to be a light to the nations. Uh, Jesus here says, I am the light of the nations. He uses world, but the same idea. He is the light not only of the Jews, but he is the light that will shine uh, to all people. Then in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 and 20, God says to his people, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. The sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. Now that is fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 and 24. I, I didn't put this in the notes to put it up on the overhead, but if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there for a minute. I want to show this to you. There's a very clear connection here. In Revelation 21, 23, and 24, it says the city, this is talking about heaven, the eternal city, has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, notice, and its lamp is the lamb. Its lamp is the lamb. And then down in verse 5 of Revelation 22, he says, there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. Well, who is going to illumine them? The lamb. Who is going to illumine them? The Lord God. And so clearly he is, John there is saying that Jesus, the lamb of God, is the Lord God in human flesh. 
And then we have 1 John 1.5 where John tells us, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, which of course reveals that God is absolutely pure, he is holy, and since Jesus is the light, we would expect him to be without sin, and as we'll see in John 8, 46, he uh, testifies to the Jews that they cannot find fault in him. He is without sin. And so what I'm saying is this, we have to understand Jesus' claim to be the light of the world to Jewish people who were steeped in these Old Testament scriptures is nothing less than he is saying, I am the Lord God in your midst. A second thing about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is it means that he reveals the truth about God to us. Uh, Jesus states in verse 14 that he has come from the Father, that he is returning to the Father. He's going to reveal to us in chapter 10, verse 30, that he and the Father are one. As he will say to Philip in chapter 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Or John 1.18, which we've studied, put it this way, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so Jesus uniquely reveals to us who God is, what God is like, and we can know God only through him. I don't know about you, but sometimes my brain has trouble getting around the concept that God is invisible. And as Paul says, he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. Uh, okay, how, how, do you, how do you latch on to that? Well, latch on to Jesus. He is the one who reveals the Father to us. And we can only know the Father as we come to him through God the Son, who is Jesus Christ. A third thing to note about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, it means that he reveals not only the truth about God to us, but he reveals the truth about us to us. Um, back in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus knew all men, and he knew what was in the hearts of all men. And the fact is, apart from knowing Christ, we really can't know ourselves because the Bible says our hearts by fallen nature are uh, deceptive and desperately wicked. And when we don't know God, we end up calling evil good and good evil and we substitute darkness for light and light for darkness and we're wise in our own sight. Isaiah chapter 5 tells us all of that. Now, Jesus says here that if we do not follow him, we are walking in the darkness. It is only as we follow him that we walk in the light. And so, as we walk in the darkness, and it's amazing how proud sinners are walking in the darkness. You know, it's like, I know where I'm going, plunk, and they fall down. And they still profess to know where they're going. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the recent upsurge of this um, Flagstaff Freethinkers group. What an anomaly for a name. They are not free thinking, I assure you. They are bound in sin in their thinking. But they are proclaiming, you know, as atheists, we need fellowship and we need to get together. And uh, I think yesterday in the paper they called themselves any science-minded 
uh, rational-oriented person can join us. And I thought, what arrogance. What utter arrogance. And they think, they see, and they are blind. And uh, that's how we are if we don't have Christ. We think we know where we're going in life, but we end up ruining our lives and the lives of all the people around we have contact with. Now, Jesus is implying here what other scriptures very plainly state, and that is, apart from him, we are dead in our transgressions and sins, and we are spiritually blind. We cannot see. We're in the darkness. In Ephesians uh, chapter 4, Paul combines the imagery both of darkness and of spiritual death when he says that unbelievers, this is Ephesians 4.18, he says unbelievers are darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now Jesus puts it positively here. He says if we follow him, we will not walk in the darkness, but we will have the light of life. He means the light that gives or imparts life to those who follow him. Um, if people are spiritually dead, they don't need lessons in morals. Because, you know, you can go talk to the cemetery all day long, tell them to be moral. It isn't going to help them. What they need is life. They need the gospel to quicken them from the dead so that then they can follow Jesus as he talks about here. And so Jesus promises, if you follow him, you will not walk in the darkness. You will have the light that gives life. So Jesus' claim here to be the light of the world, first of all, is a claim to be God. Secondly, it means that Jesus reveals the truth about God to us. Thirdly, it means that Jesus reveals the truth about us to us. And then fourthly, Jesus' claim to be the light of the world means that he reveals the truth about God to the whole world, to all people. He's not just the light of the Jews, he says. He's the light of the world. And I would argue he is the only light of the world. The various world religions claim to give enlightenment. I was a philosophy major in college, and they sit around and speculate about all the great issues of life as if, as if they can shed light on them. They can't. Only Christ can give us the life uh, that we need, the light that we need. Paul says in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ dwell all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so it's only as we know Christ and follow Christ that we can have the wisdom we need to live, the, the wisdom and knowledge we need for eternal life. And the, the amazing thing and the wonderful thing about the gospel is it applies just the same whether you're going to a primitive, illiterate people group or whether you're going onto the most uh, intellectually advanced campus in the world. Same gospel has the same effect of bringing people from death to life when they believe in Christ. Now, when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he does not mean, of course, that all people innately have enough light to uh, respond to him because he says they're walking in darkness apart from him. And he doesn't mean that people on their own can figure out spiritual truth 
and somehow come to God uh, again apart from Christ. Uh, when he, just before he ascended, as you know, he gave us the great commission that we are to go, take the gospel to all people, make disciples of all nations. And so, in other words, as Paul said, if people don't hear the gospel, how can they believe the gospel? Uh, and somebody has to go and tell them the gospel, and he has appointed his church to do that, that we will go. And when we go with the gospel and we pray, God, would you open spiritually blind eyes as we share the gospel, there is that miracle of regeneration that takes place, and uh, he reveals the glory of Christ to those who had previously been blinded by Satan, and they come to know him. Now, the Bible also calls us who know Christ as lights in the world. It says that we shine as lights on the world in the world. But there's a difference between us and Christ, of course. Christ is the source of light. We are the reflectors of light. So he is the sun, and we are like the moon. The moon has no light in itself. It reflects the light of the sun. And the same with us. We, as we walk with Christ, we reflect him to those around us so that they then can come to know him themselves. And so we have to walk closely with Jesus so that we can be a source of light to people in darkness. So Jesus makes this astounding claim. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That claim inherently demands a response. You just can't go ho-hum to a claim like that. You have to make a choice. You have to get on one side or the other. And the right response to Jesus' claim is to follow him as the light of the world. Now, first of all, we need to understand what's it mean to follow him. Um, and to follow Jesus, I think, means two main things. It means to trust in him as Savior, and it means to obey him as Lord. You know, you won't follow someone you don't trust. Say that I took you on a hike out in the woods, and uh, we were kind of in a remote place where the trail was a little sketchy, and there were uh, several animal track trails going in all directions, and I said to you, uh, I know the way, follow me. And I started off down one of those little animal tracks. Well, whether you would follow me or not depends 100% on, do I trust him? Does he know what he's talking about? Now, if you knew that I'd been in that particular part of the woods many, many times and that I'd led many groups there and out of there successfully, you, you would probably say, yeah, I, I trust him. I've talked to many people. Uh, yeah, they've been here. He's gotten them out okay. And you would follow me. But if I started off and you said, yeah, I'll follow you, and I looked back in 100 yards and you were wandering down a different path, I would conclude, he doesn't trust me. Why? Because you're not obeying. You're not following. And so to follow someone implies you trust them and the testimony that they have about them, and you actually do follow them. You obey what they're saying, and that's the issue here with Jesus. And so do you trust Jesus, and do you obey Jesus? Those are the issues. 
You have to trust his many claims about himself, and we've seen many of them in John. We need to trust the apostolic witness about Christ that we have in the New Testament. Especially, you have to trust that Jesus died for your sins, that he was raised on the third day bodily, that he ascended into heaven with the promise he is going to return bodily to judge the living and the dead. Uh, And then your trust has to translate into being in his word, obeying his commandments as he gave them. Now, when you trust Jesus as Savior and obey him as Lord, there are many, many benefits. Um, If I were to list all of the benefits of following Christ, uh, forget your afternoon and evening and take a week off work, we would be here all week just going over all of the treasures that we have in Christ. But I want to limit myself just to three that are related to the picture here that Jesus is the pillar of fire and the cloud. And those three are, we we have his presence, we have his protection, and we have his guidance. Exodus chapter 13 verse 21 says, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And all through that time that Israel was in the wilderness, that cloud hovered over the tabernacle. And it was a symbol of the fact, God is with us. At the start of the journey, Moses tells the Lord, if you don't go with us, forget it. We, we can't make it. And God promises, I'll go with you. And the cloud symbolized that. Now, in the same way, of course, Jesus promised. And one of his last promises before he ascended in Matthew 28, as he gave the Great Commission, was, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, as you go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. And the Bible tells us not only that um, we're in Christ, but it says to us that Christ is in us. We're in Christ, but Christ dwells in us. John 14, 28, he promises this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Christ dwelling in us who love him, who follow him. And I love the promise in Hebrews 13, 5, where Jesus says, I will never leave you or desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Also, that cloud and that Uh, pillar of fire, not only was a symbol of God's presence, but also of his protection, Uh, both from Pharaoh's advancing army and then later from that fierce desert sun in the day and the cold and the dark at night, the cloud went with them to protect them. And in the same way, Jesus is our protection. He protects us, number one, and most importantly, from the wrath of God, because he is our covering. He is our atonement. Uh, He protects us from all of the spiritual enemies that come at us and try to trip us up. Uh, He protects uh, Jesus here in verse 20. His enemies want to seize him, but they can't. Why? Because his hour has not yet come. And I think that that is true even of believers, that though the enemy would want to destroy us, we are protected And we are invulnerable until the moment that the Lord says, come home to me, 
And at that moment, we will go and be with him. Um, so the cloud was a, bl- a blessing of God's presence, of God's protection, but also of God's guidance because it guided Israel through that harsh and untracked wilderness, the Sinai Desert out there. When the cloud moved, the people moved. They followed the cloud. And it guided them, as you know, to springs of water. And uh, it charted their course around their enemies and in finally to the promised land. And in the same way, the Lord guides us through his word, primarily his indwelling spirit who gives us insight into the word through the godly counsel of wise and mature believers. Uh, James says that if you're in a trial, ask God for wisdom and he'll grant it. And so God guides us, his people. So many, many benefits that we get when we follow the Lord. Now, I wish I could just say, amen, we're done, let's go home. But I haven't covered the major part of our text. And the major part of our text here, sadly, shows us that the right response to Jesus following him is not the only response. And so the wrong response to Jesus' claim is to reject him based on superficial reasons. And we see that in verses 13 to 20. The Pharisees retort to this wonderful claim, I am the light of the world. You know, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. So what do they say? Uh, Verse 13, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So they're ignoring Jesus' many miracles that he has done. They are ignoring Jesus' wonderful claims that he has made, his amazing teaching. They're ignoring the witness of John the Baptist. Uh, They're ignoring all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed ahead toward Jesus. They're just setting all that aside, and they're trying to nail him on a technicality in in Deuteronomy 19.15. And that is, if you're going to bear witness in court, you need two or three witnesses. So that's how they're trying to get rid of Jesus. Well, I I only have time to skim these verses, but just note these two things. First of all, we saw this last, uh, or a couple of weeks ago also, people who don't want to follow Jesus will come up with all sorts of superficial reasons uh, for rejecting him. I think the Pharisees here are going back to chapter 5 and verse 31. Jesus there said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, the word alone is in italics. It means the translators are helping you interpret what they think it means. The, The actual verse reads, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. So the Pharisees are digging up Jesus' own words, trying to throw him in his face and say, we have grounds to reject your testimony. Um, But in the context there, what Jesus meant was, if I am acting independently of my Father, then my testimony is not true. In that same context, however, he showed them that the Father testified of him through the testimony of John the Baptist, through Jesus' miracles, through God's word, and so on. But here, the, the Pharisees aren't really raising honest questions. 
They're trying to find an excuse for their unbelief so that they can reject Jesus' claims. And Jesus then replies in verses 14 to 18, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. Here's why. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. Heaven, of course. But you don't know where I came, come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And so Jesus is telling them, I came from heaven, I am returning to heaven, and that's why he can claim to be the light of the world, but he's asserting you Pharisees are in the dark. They were judging Jesus outwardly according to the flesh. Uh, Jesus says, I don't judge people that way. And when he does judge people, he says, I do it in truth because he depended on the Father who sent him. And then he concedes to their point about two witnesses. But Jesus says, I'm not my only witness. There is I, and then there is the Father who witnesses to me. Then the Pharisees retort in verse 19, where is your father? And they were probably thinking of his earthly father, and it was, a, uh, it was a smear or a question of his paternity because there were rumors circulating that his mother had become pregnant with him before she was married to Joseph. They will bring that up again in uh, verse 41 of chapter 8. But Jesus answers them in verse 19 very plainly, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And so the only way we can know the father is through the son, through Jesus. And by refusing to follow Jesus, these religious leaders uh, remained in spiritual darkness. But here's the interesting thing. In their mind, they had reasons. And you know what? They were biblical reasons. And it's just like this man, this Jehovah's Witness that wrote to me. You know, he had all kinds of biblical reasons why Jesus is not God. Put, put that in quotes, biblical reasons. And yet, here he is in total spiritual darkness. And whenever people make up excuses for why they aren't following Jesus... There is a deeper reason, and that's the second and final thing to note here. The root reason that people reject Jesus is that they are in spiritual darkness, and they love it because their deeds are evil. We saw that back in chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus said, or John said, men love darkness rather than light. Here's why. Because their deeds were evil, and they don't want their deeds exposed by the light. And so people outside of Christ, even if they're outwardly moral people, they're living in moral and spiritual darkness. They're making up their rules. That's why the whole world is going after homosexuality right now, by the way. They don't have any guide. They don't have any standard. It's like, well, everybody seems to say that's okay, and they're nice people, and Oh, yeah, it must be all right. I just read a thing yesterday that um, 
Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lesbian feminist radical professor at uh, Syracuse, and she got saved. Her book was out on the book table for a while, her testimony. But she spoke at Wheaton College, and a number of students protested. And uh, they are gay-friendly, if not gay themselves. That's it, Wheaton. You know, bastion of evangelicalism, where uh, Billy Graham and uh, Jim Elliott and all sorts of people are from there. And that's where they're at. Why? Well, the world says it seems okay. It's just utter darkness. But the evidence that somebody is in spiritual darkness is given to us in verse 20. They want to get rid of Jesus. See, they want to eliminate Jesus from their lives. And yet, even though they are trying to do that, they won't eliminate God because Jesus' hour had not yet come. In other words, God is sovereign and he even uses evil people and evil things to accomplish his sovereign purpose. Even the cross was sovereignly determined by God and yet he was not responsible for it. You see that in the book of Acts, that, that God determined that his son would die for our sins, and yet evil people did it, and evil people are responsible for their sin. But someday, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, either for uh, salvation or for condemnation. So the root reason people reject Jesus is they just love their sin. And they don't want the light shining into their life, telling them what's right and wrong. So Jesus' claim here is just astounding. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That claim draws a line. And you're on one side or the other of the line. With the Pharisees, you can reject Jesus' claim for some superficial reason. Well, I don't believe in this, or I, I got a problem with that. You can make up reasons. Or you can follow Jesus by trusting him as your Savior and obeying him as your Lord. And I contend either Jesus, who made such a claim, is a crackpot on the level of the guy that told me he was the Apostle Thomas, or he is who he claims to be. And I think there's more than good reason to believe he is, in fact, the light of the world, and you should follow him. Dear Father, I pray that we all would see Jesus for who he is. You have sent him to this dark world to shine light into it. And we who know you can reflect that light to others around us, but you have to open their blind eyes, Lord. You have to work the miracle of new life in them. And I pray you would do that. I pray that all who profess to know Jesus would be obeying him as Lord. And uh, that we all would be ordering our lives before you every day, beginning on the thought level. And so we thank you for this tremendous claim that Jesus made that just draws a line. And I pray that everyone hearing my voice would be on the right side of that line. In Jesus' name.
Amen. We're going to uh, take an offering as we conclude, and if you're a visitor with us, we don't expect you to give. We appreciate the faithful gift.